0: You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. I am thrilled to have George Freecon in the Intelligent Data podcast today. He is an award-winning data governance expert and is regularly called as one of the top global influencers on these topics. We talked about three core skills of data governance practitioners, treating data as an asset, some hot buttons in data governance that we're trying to resolve, and dark data. He is an amazing orator and has a lot of good insights on data governance. We also have some goodies in our show notes that he's offering up on his data governance courses. Enjoy listening to our show with George Ferrican. Today in our show, we have George Ferrican, data governance and BI leader. George works as the data governance and BI director for the University of British Columbia. But more importantly, he is the founder and content creator for Lights on Data Consulting an e-learning platform that provides data professionals with increased knowledge and better understanding of data governance, data management, and data storytelling. He is ranked among the top 10 global thought leaders and influencers on digital disruption and data governance, and is an avid LinkedIn and YouTube content creator. George, welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. George, would you be able to give a quick introduction about yourself?
1: My pleasure. You know, that was beautifully said. So thank you so much for that intro. You know, some people call me the friendly data guy, and that's because I do love to create this educational content and really put it out there in forms of articles and courses, videos and live shows. So that's really what I like to do at heart, though. I'm also a data governance BI practitioner.
0: What is so interesting about this, when I introduce myself to my clients, I say, you can call me the data guy. So we all work the same way. We all think the same way. Good to know you're the friendly data guy. I don't know if I can say the same thing. So how does a project manager by background become a data governance, data quality instructor, becomes a DG thought leader around the world? Give us a rundown of this history here.
1: And I have to say that even before becoming a PM, I also worked as a business analyst and also programmer. So I was always kind of exposed to that technical side of things. And I think as a project manager, though, it really opened my eyes to different views on how data through its systems could impact the end user and really anybody that's interacting with that system gave me some exposure to the importance of data quality and why everyone should be responsible for it, why there should always be more awareness of it. And of course, as to the rationale of having data governance too. So that's kind of really propelled me into data quality and then you can't really have good data quality without proper data governance in place. So it's this natural progression, if you will. I was surprised when I first really heard of data governance even. First, I didn't know what it was initially. And then I was very surprised to find out that it's a bigger thing than I thought. And that so many companies are starting to invest in it. And this was, you know, more than 10 years ago. And things have really progressed quite a bit since then.
0: I've never talked to people who have a project management background going into data governance. I've talked to a lot of data guys. You mentioned you've learned what data means to the business. How do you think your project management skills, like task-oriented or agile, you know, those kind of skills, are they transferable to the world of data? Digital product developers have caught up quite a bit on the agile side. What is this teaching you? What skills are you transferring from project management to the world of data governance?
1: There's a few ones, but the biggest one that stands out is the communication piece and active listening. Making sure that you're not just a one-sided in terms of the requirements. It's not that from your perspective, but you're trying to get the full gamut of what's going on, what people need, and not necessarily what people are saying, but also what they're asking for, what they're needing out of it, and what's in it for them. And that's that's one piece. And then the whole agile management of it of a project really goes in. It's overlapping in uh, data analytics as well, and in any really data field.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a critical skill set, knowing, you know, what the other person, what the business person is going to get out of all of this, and then translating them to requirements and subsequently to execution. That is a critical thinking skill set, or as they call it, the design thinking skill set, which is transferable, right?
1: You know, so many times, even in software development, I feel that we come up with these great ideas on the technical implementation side without sometimes consulting the end user or involving them throughout the process. You might just involve them in the initial phase of requirement solicitation, but then you kind of forget about it. And when you present that final product to the end user, they're like, yeah, it's good, but it's not quite what we asked for. Plus, things might have changed throughout the six months that it took to develop the product.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. That seems to be an age-old problem, agile or not agile. You know, requirements are not well understood, they're not well thought out and more importantly you know while we keep talking about continuous iteration for some reason the data practitioners seem to not latch onto it as much as the guys who design the the websites or mobile products and those kind of the world of digital if you will the world of experience right it's not so much on the data side
1: that's true and i think maybe as data practitioners we kind of like to keep our head down and do our work work with that data get those insights and maybe not interact as much with the end user? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, agree. So let's get into data governance. You're the data governance guru. If I have to ask you to pick three words, make it five if you like, to describe data governance, what would they be? <laughs> you, it doesn't have to be one word. Maybe you can make two words too.
1: I'll be cheeky and I'll use an acronym if that's okay. And it, that's the WIIFM, what's in it for me, like you mentioned. It's data enablement and, again, communication. I, th- I think communication is maybe 80% of what data governance stands for.
0: Gotcha. So it's WIFM, it's communication. I work with the, the change management team quite a bit. Nowadays, it's bucketed into a world of data literacy. So that's WIFM, communication, and data enablement. So that's an interesting word to use to describe data governance. Would love to know what that is. What do you mean by data enablement?
1: Well, I think it's a mix of things. It can stand for some sort of a data democratization, as in, let's put the data out there with the proper context and the proper ownership, understanding of what it stands for and how it can be used so that anybody from the organization can take advantage of it and come up with these innovative ideas. It could also be, again, bringing clarity to the end user when they're looking at a report or they maybe want to query a data set by themselves is to make sure that they're doing it properly.
0: So kind of putting those best practices around how do you get what you need by using the technology at hand to the fullest potential or don't even go to technology, focus more on capability like data quality or data lineage and data catalog and how all these things work together. So I call that the day in the life of a data analyst. And I believe the our friends from ThoughtSpot use the word analyst of the future, if you will.
1: Right, well, well said, yes.
0: No, that sounds good. The number one objective I keep hearing quite often is Treating data as an asset. You know, I'm hearing this motivation again and again for what's the scope of data governance. What does that mean to you? How do you treat data as an asset?
1: There's a few different takes on it. Um, So let me give you a couple. So let's think of what sort of assets a company has. And the first two that come to mind is really financial assets and I guess the employees' assets. And for the employees, you kind of have HR that's managing those assets, if you will. For the financial assets, well, you have the finance department, right? So what does that mean? So we, we have these three things: financial assets, employee as assets, and data as assets. Now, if we were to focus on financial assets, well, who's managing those? Accountants, for the most part. And accountants are really governed by a set of principles and policies. They're really checked by auditors.
0: Yep. So the gap principle, right?
1: Exactly. You know, you have auditing in place to ensure that I don't know correct management practices of financial assets is taking place. So there's no cooking the books, if you will. So that, those principles and policies and auditing accomplish for financial assets, what data governance accomplishes for data. So that's one way to look at it. You need to make sure that you have these principles, policies, practices, standards in place that then data can also be managed in a similar way that financial assets are or your human resources are as well. Another way to look at it that I like to think of it is think of it of a museum that have all these different artifacts, paintings, statues, what have you, that they put on display if these are not managed as assets, if they're not being curated, they're not being taken care of, stored properly, then put on display with the proper description and you know history bits and protection around them and all that stuff. If they're just left out in a field, they'll just go to waste. They'll start disintegrating after some time, I would imagine. The same thing happens to the data if we don't treat it as an asset, if we don't store it properly, if we don't protect it from being damaged if we don't curate it and put in the proper context in order to be used by its intended audience.
0: It's a very interesting analogy you gave around uh, museum. I'll, I'll give you a quick thought process. I use this museum analogy quite a bit. So when you go to a museum, you see art, right? Artists create the art. So business people are equivalent to the artist's. Now, there are roles such as museum directors who maintain the artwork. They know where the art, they know who created the art. They know where the art is coming from. They know how old is it. They know what the history behind that art is. Now, those guys, you know, the curators, if you will, they are pretty much your stewards. Exactly. Now, there is also... I need to keep the museum clean. I need to make sure that it's well sanitized and, you know, the janitors, if you will, those are the IT guys. They want to make sure that the platform at which the art is enabled, in this case, the museum, right?, has to be clean. It has to be, have the appropriate security technology so that nobody gets into the building. It has to have the appropriate you know, labeling technology so that when a non-art person looks at it, they know who did it, when did they do it, and what's the history behind it. So labeling, sanitizing, and keeping it clean, that's what I feel IT's job is. I use this analogy quite a bit with my clients.
1: And then you obviously also have security in place. You might even have those architects to re-engineer some of those display rooms to be maybe split in multiple little areas or even have the hidden corridors through which the uh, art could be transported in and out.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you're using the museum analogy. That's one of my favorites. Hey, listen, I noticed a lot of your LinkedIn recommendations. People say that you somehow do some magic to engage with non-technical people. That seemed to be a resonating theme in your LinkedIn. How do you do that? And and what I mean by that is engage on data conversations with non-technical people. It's as late as 2020 or maybe even 2021, I believe. You mentioned communication, but that's not engagement to me. That's how do you communicate what's in it for them and so on and so forth. What is that art of communicating data with non-technical people?
1: Well, I think, like you said, you need to make it relevant to them. So engagement to an individual would be different depending what their needs are, what they're thinking of, or even how they're consuming information. Some might be a little bit more visual, some they require a personal story through which you need to pass a message or, I don't know, just a point form document that you need to pass on to them if they're more, I don't know, visual, I guess.
0: Yeah, if they're more data-driven, then you, you know, probably do an extract of what's relevant for them and then send it to them so they can play with it. If they're more visual, you show them a dashboard. If they're more executive, you show them a PowerPoint. Different types of communication according to the audience on the other side, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. And yes, it's mostly engagement through communication, but sometimes it's also through the solutions that you provide them with. Some self-serve solutions or however they need to engage with the data.
0: Right. Do you think a knowledge of the domain that the people you talk to, for example, if it's automotive or if it's retail or if it's healthcare or if it's financial services, do you think that domain knowledge is important when you have these data governance discussions? I
1: think so. I mean, I think that any data discussion that you're having with the other person is really needs to be tied down to that domain knowledge. I think it's really one of the issues even on, on data science, data analytics side of things that certain individuals, they're stepping away from it, they're not really embedded, let's say, in that business. And they start making assumptions without really validating them with uh, that business owner because they don't know the business, they don't know some of the, the context and sometimes it's off the charts in terms of, I mean, not in a good way on some of the assumptions that are being made and they're built into these data models. And same with on data governance. Yes, I think it does help to start leading those discussions and probe the what ifs and you know how tos when you're trying to get the information out of your business side colleagues.
0: Absolutely. You know, Scott Taylor was actually on the show before. He somehow found a way the you know, his three V's methodology or the eight eights, I think he's going to go nine now. But the point is, he's figured out these ways of communicating effectively in a very non-technical way, yet organize the thoughts. Because let's be real. I mean, I've seen most of the data governance to be initiated, not owned, but initiated by IT. Business doesn't usually raise their hand and say, we need data governance, right? Well, they do, but they don't kickstart it. They're not the fire starters. I've constantly seen IT and the challenge is IT goes and talks about data models and data quality and cloud technology and business like, okay, that's great, but I don't really care, you know? And that's when this domain knowledge, if you go talk to a digital marketing person, you need to talk segmentation. If you go talk to a salesperson, you need to talk territory alignment. If you talk to healthcare, you need to know patient engagement, right? So IT being the initiators, do you see this to be a problem? I mean, as you see people taking your classes, thinking about data governance, are they more IT audience? Are they more business audience? What do you see?
1: It's still a mix and you're completely right. Data governance gets initiated by IT and often if it does continue to remain under IT, it tends to fail. And that's because it doesn't have that business involvement or business ownership. And in the end, that's where your requirements need to come from. And those are most knowledgeable about what needs to be done with that data. or How should the data serve them best? And of course, IT is a strong collaborator because they're providing the technical solutions into all of this. But they're a partner. They're not, should not be the owner. And like you mentioned, Scott Taylor, you know, is always saying that don't mention data quality to the business. They don't really care about that, right? They care about the consequences of not having good data quality. So that's the business language that you should be using with them and seeing with data governance.
0: How does it impact your business decisions without that, right? If you can articulate that, you're in the right spot. So as you're having these discussions, can you help me understand what are the two, three hot buttons for the people on the other side that you desperately need data governance for?
1: And there are definitely a few it really depends what sort of industry you're in. Let's say maturity your your data is at in the organization. But for most, maybe it falls under three categories. The first one being, we're not complying to different regulations and we're being fined constantly year after year. We got to pay these fines because we can't prove X and Y, or we can't really show who's customers we're bringing into our model for this and that and how we're protecting their privacy and how we're not misusing the information. And There's a bunch of things.
0: GDPR, CCPA, you don't have a choice but to comply, right?
1: Exactly. PCI, FIPA, there are so many... Depending on the industry, you have different regulations, of course, on the data. So that's definitely tends to be a driver. And, and that's more on the business side being, you know what, it's hurting our financial aspect, but also might be hurting our reputation. So we need to get this solved. The other piece is really on related to data quality, but not data quality. So it's the side effect of not having that good data. It's the fact that well, we don't have a good idea of who our customers are, We don't have a bird's eye view of one. We see all these different fragments depending what system we're looking at, but we don't have a good representation of customer A or the different groupings or what have you. We don't have a good idea if we do want to expand what market should be expanding in. If we want to automate and save some money internally on having quicker deployment of our products or even the whole supply chain management or serving our customers better. Again, we're kind of just basing our ideas and our conclusions on hunches because we've worked in this field for so long, but it's not really concrete on data. And sometimes if you were to check the data, if you did have proper data quality in place, you would see that the data would lead you into a different decision.
0: I hear three things. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm hearing compliance, which is obviously you don't have a choice but to do data governance, right? And the second thing, what I call as make money. Right. If you use a very non technical term. So, whether you're building a customer 360, whether you're thinking about a new market to enter, you got to think about how to make money in that market. Every organization, except maybe nonprofit or not for profit, have to think what's in it for them. Why do I need to enter this new market? There's an opportunity for us to capture. And then the third part of it is what I call as save money. This is when you want to think about supply chain optimization or you want to think about inventory management, if you will. Or you're thinking about how do I proactively address my patients so that they don't come back to the hospital. Every time when they go to a hospital, the hospital gets charged and so does the payer, the insurance company, right? So do you agree kind of compliance, make money and save money, and then you can bucket all your use cases within one of these three buckets, you think? Maybe innovation is another aspect of this?
1: Yeah, which could come out of the
0: sort of second one. But yes, yes, absolutely. I'm keeping it as lame man's term as possible is all.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think so many companies have an issue with that third bucket as well, that yes, they want to save money, but they don't even know where they stand right now very well, right? They're asking, how many customers do we have? And depending on who they're asking, they're getting different reports with different numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's a fantastic point. So we have to think about where we start. We got to start somewhere, but at the same time, are we having good quality data to support our argument on saving money, right? Now, in all of this, one consistent theme is data literacy. Look, you and I know this space, so we're able to talk the way we did, right? But what about, again, non-technical people? How important it is for them to understand the facets of data literacy? What are you seeing in in your engagements?
1: So uh, first of all, just to make sure we're on the same page, to me, data literacy refers to that ability to read, understand, create, and communicate data as information. You got it. And I think even us as citizens, not just as employees, We need to be data literate as we're encountering data every day in our lives. When we look at our bank accounts, when we look at the news, reading an article, it has some sort of a graph or some sort of a data component in there. And I think we should be more aware on how we should be reading this and to make sure that we're not being maybe misled or we're not misinterpreting things that we're hearing or reading as well. So I think it's important as us as individuals, as citizens, to know all of this a little bit better. And obviously as employees, even more so.
0: That's an interesting comment you made there. You're talking like in my daily life, how do I use data? Am I consciously aware that I'm using data for my daily decisions, be it the stock market, be it you ran out of groceries? Well, you got to put your list somewhere and you start there. That's a piece of data right there, right? I know what I'm short of. Maybe in the future, my fridge can talk to my phone and say, hey, the weight of your milk has gone down quite a bit. And now it'll automatically notify me saying, here's a list of grocery. But you know, somewhere in the utopian future, I, I tend to be a believer in those things. But yeah, no, that's spot on. I agree with you. Now, when I'm consciously aware of being a citizen data user, do you think that will show up in my professional life or even vice versa? Are you seeing that yourself? Like, are you a practicing citizen data user in your house?
1: Well, you know, maybe the most it shows up in the news on how data gets represented at times. And sometimes it is to make a certain party or a certain side of the story more prominent. And you maybe in a way bring some skepticism out of you to make sure that you're kind of questioning and understanding the full picture and looking at how data gets represented in forms of uh, graphs for the most part. And to make sure, you know, are you influenced here in somebody else's decision or are you being presented facts to make that decision yourself? And then I think that, again, plays into your employee life whenever you're looking at a report or whenever you're asking for information as a manager or you as a, a report developer, you're presenting something for the end user to kind of be aware of all these different factors in terms of color usage, even. Or what's the best graph to use to represent that information so that the other party could get insights right away from it and be as less biased as possible when they do?
0: That is very, very interesting. Depending on the type of channel you turn on, your news may be biased too, right? But then the visualization, depending on what you use, a bar chart or a line graph, you may be communicating a certain point in your mind, but the reader can be interpreting that a different ways and they might be taking decisions out of it a different way. So what's the consistent communication way in terms of visualization? That's that's fantastic.
1: And now the governments are investing more and more into the open data concept that they're putting out there for their citizens to make use of it, which again, it informs maybe opening new businesses or in a new sector or even as citizens to understand where your tax money is getting spent. And are you okay with that or not?
0: Very interesting. Since you mentioned open data concept, let me ask you this. You talk a lot about dark data in your shows. Now, I know dark data is not about open data, but can you elaborate on, you know, the industry wide definition of dark data? And why is it so important for us to consider that now? It's one of
1: those other um, interesting, catchy terms for data, you know, like big data used to be quite popular 10 years ago. Maybe it still is. So maybe a dark data is sort of the new big data piece, but dark data really refers to data that we collect as a company, as an organization. We're storing, but we're not using it for anything. We're just storing it because we can store it. And the perfect example is your emails or your photographs, even on your phone. Storage is so cheap that you're just keeping in there, even though it might just be a uh, out of focus photo that you took as you were, I don't know, getting your phone out of your pocket. But it's too complicated to delete it. Why not leave it there? It's cheaper. Doesn't quite affect you, or it's you know web traffic data that the company has gathered ten years ago in terms of click throughs and open rates and things like that. But you're not using it. You're thinking, eh, it's it's cheap. Let's just keep it there. Who knows. But then, of course, you could also contain some private high-sensitivity data that you might have collected it, and it now can become a liability for you and a risk because, God forbid, you ever get a data breach and you know hackers get into that high-privacy data that you're storing that you could have just easily erased if you wanted to because you're not using it for anything. Then you would have been better off if you
0: would have followed those data destruction practices. So are you saying that one man's garbage is another man's gold is what they say, right? Are you thinking along those lines and saying, "You know what? You need to pay attention to your dark data." And it is important as much as your online data or the data you use today, right? Are companies actually considering archival policies for dark data? Are you advocating that?
1: Yeah, I think that there needs to be a way to classify all your data, and a lot of companies are following that, and then I realize, you know, after 10-year retention that you're not doing anything else with it, might as well just scrub it clean, get rid of it. For example, if there's some sort of a litigation process, it will cost you so much to have to go through all those documents. Let's say we tend to create all these versions of our documents or PowerPoint presentations, what have you, and just to keep it there. But we're never really going back to that first version or previous versions. We're always keeping the last one. But we're not deleting it because, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll need it at some point. Though you never do we kind of hoarders
0: sometimes. It's interesting because, you know, there are some aspects of data that government has intervened. For example, for a healthcare company, mental health records have to be kept forever. I believe there's like 15 years or 20 years or something like that, some big number, right? Versus a regular citizen, non-mental health patient has to be only saved for seven years unless they're minor and minor, I believe it's 21 and under, right? There are all these rules that government had put together in the United States, and I'm sure in Canada too, that basically says you need to consider the archival and destruction policies for data beyond a certain lifespan, right? With all these conditions. Do you think there are other data? For example, nobody talks about transactional data, these photos that you talked about, these emails that you talked about. There is golden nuggets in that data too. But there's also, you know, if I lose my phone, there are some emails that a hacker can get into And basically just, you know, on behalf of me, he or she can do some damage, right? And are you thinking it's a good idea for us to formalize these policies or we're too early for that? We don't even think about dark data yet.
1: It definitely depends on the company. But yes, I would say so many companies don't classify it in the first place anyway. So they're not even aware of what they have. Uh, There's been all these surveys with higher up management that many times they're not even aware that they have this quote unquote dark data that's really the first step to understand what you have and then how should you treat each class of data that you've classified.
0: Mm, I'm fascinated by this discussion, by the way. So I haven't paid much attention to dark data, to be honest with you, but it's not because it's less important than the others. It's only because it's it's a category that not a lot of people pay attention to, just like a regular human, right? But I see your point on the value of this dark data to be considered for the archival and destruction policies. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing some lights on data. No pun intended.
1: (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. And again, the point is, there's definitely data that we're not using that could be valuable. So we want to store it for future use. But there's also data that will never be valuable that we're storing anyways, just because it's cheap and easy to do. So
0: don't be a hoarder. Exactly. Awesome. Let's get into your show. So let's talk about lights on data. What is the motivation there?
1: Well, it's for me to learn. It's definitely uh, getting me some exposure to amazing minds out there that are very knowledgeable in their industry and their fields. And it's also giving them a platform to share their voice and their learnings with the audience. So it's a little bit selfish, but also trying to find another way, another medium to deliver some content, some knowledge back to the audience that's
0: listening in. Right? I've noticed that as a part of Lights on Data e-learning program, you've generated a ton of data governance content. So many methodologies, framework. I'm I'm an avid a- avid follower of your YouTube videos so that I can get some ideas myself, right? There's so much content you've created. How did you get to assemble all of these? Is it in your experience, is it the speakers that come to your show or both? How do you build all of these?
1: it's a mix. I mean, in terms of gaining the experience, a lot is derived from my own personal experience, but also, yes, through my interactions and being part of different boards or groups or conversations with fellow practitioners that you're kind of learning all these different stories and best practices that then I'm trying to share with the audience. You know, whatever can be shared, of course. Yeah. And it's definitely a pleasure to give back.
0: No, and and I certainly appreciate it. I can vouch for the content. So we'll make sure we put in the show notes, your YouTube channel. I think there's a lot of valuable contents out there. So as you're learning from speakers in your program or from your own experience, what are some of the good data governance certifications you would recommend?
1: That's a very good question. You know, there are not really any that I can think of that are coming out of universities or any, um, let's say, renowned programs out there. They're more on the data management side. So like a DEMA, for example, the Data Management Association, they have a few on these and they're more overarching. So data management, data governance in general, but they're not those that can be on data governance. There's another one that's called, the acronym is funny, is CIMP, Certified Information Management Professional. And then they have a track in data governance as well. But uh, yeah, we call it CHIMP. <laughs>
0: Nice. I'm going to put some links in our show notes as well for all of these. What do you think about DGI, Data Governance Institute? Do they offer any kind of certifications? Not that I'm aware of.
1: I know they're redoing their site right now. So maybe they're coming up with something. I know dataversity is also big in the sphere in terms of data governance. They're offering courses. And usually these certifications are, hey, you've taken the course and you passed it.
0: They're not like a PMI, you know, PMP to PMI. They're not like that is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. And these are, in my mind, the governing bodies. So if anything, whatever is happening in the world of data governance, be it the agile data governance or providing materials, they should be able to support it. But I'm surprised to see that they don't have these. Now, you yourself have covered quite a bit of this, and I'm going down the road of career development, as you can notice, right? There are people who have asked me this question, you know, whether it's DGI or DEMA. You've done a lot of advice in your LinkedIn life about data governance strategists and practitioners from a career standpoint. Maybe if you can summarize that in two to three minutes, that would be fantastic.
1: I've started recently this data governance interview series where I'm trying to prepare newcomers into sort of nailing those first rounds of interviews that they would get for these positions. And it's something that I didn't have When I entered a field, and I thought it's something that people would be able to benefit from. And again, because there's no real track that you can get out of, it's not like you can get a bachelor in data governance, right? So uh, it's not like, you know, bachelor of computer science programming type of a thing. And uh, that's one. But then I'm also trying to be a little bit more practical. At least from what I learned when I got into the field, there was a lot of theory involved. So now I'm trying to actually show certain frameworks or maturity models and walk them through that and what does it actually mean and not just giving them the theory about it, but also examples and templates for them to actually see what it looks like and how they could tailor that for their own data governance program.
0: Gotcha. So these are practical tools that you can use for your everyday data governance strategy and practice. And basically you can use it for your organization. Are you open sourcing it? Meaning are you opening it for the public?
1: Yeah, some and some will be part of my uh, practical data governance courses that I'm developing right now, which maybe offers a little bit more insight and practical takeaways. But yeah, I'm trying to, again, give back as much as I can. And again, some of these also involve stories and not all name the organizations that it's referring to, but I think it's good for more upcoming or current data governance practitioners to understand how others are doing it or listen to these use cases so they can learn from it.
0: Absolutely. And you've talked a lot about some of the other facets around data governance. For example, you discuss a lot about data science and BI, which to me is more on the analytics side, the data storytelling, if you will, right? What's your relationship in that field?
1: Well, so right now in my university work life, if you will, So I am leading the data governance and BI department for the fundraising arm of the university and alumni engagement of the university. So not the entire university, but a, a big component of it for sure. And within our team, we also have data analytics or a data science team, if you will. And they definitely work hand in hand with the BI team, which mostly looks at that as is data, trying to put in a report, see what we have, where we currently stand. And then the data analytics, data science team is trying to build some predictive modeling and show trends and see where things could lead us if we made different decisions or if we take different paths and so on. So there's definitely a close relationship between all of them. And data governance, I find, that kind of ties it all together as it brings the people component in it and the context necessary to make sure that even though we're working with, I don't know, 50 different data sources, we are all talking about the same language.
0: Yeah. And what's interesting to me, based on what I've seen you produce so far, is that data governance is not just about data management. Look, when you talk about capabilities like quality, lineage, catalog, and all of these data governance attributes, if you will, or or capabilities, it is important, absolutely, for you to do that day in the life of a data analyst. But there's also the data storytelling side, which is, hey, I know how to talk about managing my data, but I need to go tell, do something with it. Those business decisions are coming up in the world of data science and BI and analytics, right? So it's important you tie them all together because data governance is after all business driven. And I like the idea of putting it all together into a data governance portfolio right? Or data governance, thought process, or thought leadership. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So on that note, what is the future of DG? I'm hearing words like agile DG now, which is a term that, you know, DGI uses quite a bit. What's the future? Does big data change the scope and thought leadership of data governance? Nowadays, we talk about AI-driven data management, as in data management technologies can think on its own, and recommend business insights right off the bat if you just throw terabytes of data at it, right? What's your thought? How does data governance change in this AI driven future?
1: Well, I think ethics plays a, a bigger role in it, and that's still something that's being developed, but it always needs to be mindful and considered. There's so many more implications, especially as you're bringing big data. Because you might be now including and merging all these anonymized data sets, but as you're combining them into one view, you might actually reveal some very personal details. And not necessarily about an individual, but about a cohort. And you got to think sometimes, well, is that ethical or not? To understand even for an entire population, what's sort of driving them, what their needs are, what their intentions are, just by looking at the data, right? Because that could then allow you to influence it in certain ways. And like you mentioned, there's a bunch of automatization that really would allow to move that dial forward a little bit quicker. But then we also need to make sure, well, how do we configure this automation, and can we still keep it in check or will it just be evolving on its own, if you will, and start making business decisions or even changes on those definitions without you being aware of it?
0: I'm loving this. So you mentioned three points. I'm going to add one more. You mentioned ethics, which is important. The anonymization of data, so the decision that Google took for a cookie-less world, Apple's been doing that forever, but Google just took that decision, which means you now have the two giants, Apple and Google, who are having massive fan following and usage, anonymizing their interactions. Then you talked about automation, right? All of these tools are now using AI as an automation engine, but automation in the context of what? Tool does not know what business outcome you, the human in the loop, are trying to take. You have to be sensitive of that, and that means you need to have business and IT working hand-to-hand with data governance being the driving board. Now, one thing I haven't heard you talk about, and maybe you, you have, is the bias. There is racial discrimination. There's gender discussions. We're seeing the world of data constantly getting biased into, you know, a human who's trying to make sense out of it. What do you think about
1: that? I'll share a story with you that I read recently. Maybe this was 10 years ago or so when uh, smartphones were all the rage, but not everybody could afford them. And I think it might've been City of Boston, maybe that came up with this app that would allow its citizens to track where potholes are found on the street because the city would invest, obviously, a lot in road repairs and sidewalk repairs and everything. And they thought, you know what, let's try and put this in the part of our citizens and let them tell us where we should invest first, our funding, because we can't fix everything. So let them tell us where it's most important to focus our efforts on. And they did, and it worked great. But then they found out there was quite a bit of a bias. And actually, most rich neighborhoods were being serviced first. Why? Because phones at least back then. And still now they're quite expensive. And only, you know, the rich kids, first of all, there was the age discrimination that if you're younger, you're more likely to have a smartphone than than you were older. And then it was the, the whole rich versus poor neighborhoods that were favoritized because people with money that were mostly walking through their rich neighborhoods were able to identify the potholes and send it back to the city. So yes, discrimination and that bias thing plays a huge role in our data for sure. And we need to make sure that the fact that we don't have the data, that's could be a data quality issue. And we need to identify the fact that we are missing out on things.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. That is a brilliant example. The data scientists call it the unconscious bias, right? You don't know. You're not intending this consequence when the Boston people put that together, right? The city put that idea together. It's a brilliant idea that you're crowdsourcing your priorities, right? But at the same time, it depends on who is going to respond to the survey on the other side. If it's going to be this rich kid neighborhood, obviously, if those are the only or the majority of the people who are responding, then you're going to get them prioritized over the others who may or may not have access to smartphones. Even if they do, there might be a population who's not interested in filling up a survey. Right. Absolutely. That's a brilliant example. Thank you. You know, to wrap up, George, this has been an amazing discussion. You've simplified all my questions back, which is important. No wonder you have this ability to engage with your non-technical people. That's very kind. Yeah. I would like to wrap up by asking you, what are the core skills that a data governance professional, maybe technical and non-technical, should be aware of and start to adapt and adopt? Maybe, you know, two to three skills. What comes in your mind?
1: I think that requirement elicitation to make sure that you're able to actually capture those business requirements and communication and convincing people to do something or take ownership over something.
0: You're big on this communication, huh?
1: Yeah. And you know what? It's not just tied to data governance. I think overall, even in personal relationships, if we have better communications, I think we can just solve a lot more things.
0: No doubt. Absolutely. Dr. Phil comes to mind, but (laughs) no comments. (laughs) Awesome. Hey, are you ready for a lightning round? Let's do it. All right. So what are a couple of your favorite books and or podcasts? You can do more than a couple if you like.
1: Well, I have to mention Scott Taylor's book, Telling Your Data Story. That's just brilliant and such an easy read and insightful. And podcast, you know, I love The Ravid Show, The Artists of uh, Data Science, Ken's, uh, what was it, Ken's Favorite Neighbors. There's a few out there.
0: Is that from Ken G? Ken G, yes. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I've, I've, I've loved the Ravit show because his community gives a lot of insight. So that's that's brilliant. Thank you. All right. And the second question. So I assume you've been on lockdown, not going to office for the last year, 2020.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you do anything special? Did you learn a new skill set in your personal life during the COVID lockdown?
1: Well, you know, that's when I started to create these online courses. So whatever time I saved on commute, I put into my courses
0: People, listen, this is the return on investment of not traveling or not commuting to work. That is so valuable that you spent that time on creating these courses. That's fantastic. All right. I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. What advice do you give to our listeners, especially executives who are either starting this journey, and believe me, there are people who are just starting this data governance journey too, versus somebody who wants to move to the advanced facets of data governance?
1: Treat data as an asset.
0: That is brilliant. George, you have been a phenomenal guest in our Intelligent Data Podcast show, and you have creative, innovative ways of data governance, which obviously has received you awards. I hope you will continue to shine on Lights on Data. Thank you for being in our show today.
1: I appreciate it. And thank you for being such an amazing host. Appreciate it, George.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Murali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.